The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. As we constantly move forward, there is a continuing and urgent need for higher education. It's necessary for tomorrow's future and for a dynamically changing workforce. As the need for education is changing, so is education itself. Welcome to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education with your host, Dave Goldberg. In this program, we'll discuss the complex changes that are being made to higher education today, and we'll help you stay ahead of tomorrow. If you're a student, educator, or in the workforce. Now, here's Dave Goldberg. Good day and welcome to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education. I am Dave Goldberg. I'm your show host and Big Beacon is a movement to transform higher education at bigbeacon.org. In every episode, we explore some of the innovators and innovations that are changing the world of higher education all around us. And you can follow uh, Emma Schoenfellner, who's out there live tweeting the show at uh, hashtag Big Beacon Radio. So today we're... uh, Fortunate to have a special guest with us, uh, Stu Wallace. Uh, Stu, welcome to the show. Hello, Dave. Glad to be here. Thank you very much. Yeah, and and uh, we're going to talk mainly about uh, creativity and innovation today, and you've written a book on that subject. But before we dive into that, uh, you've been in industry, you've been an engineering faculty member, uh, a dean at Val, uh, a dean of engineering at Valparaiso University, not not far from me here in Douglas, Michigan, and now you're a writer, speaker, and consultant. But let's uh, hop in the time machine and go back a bit. What were some of the early experiences in your life that you think led you to your your current uh, career path? Well, Dave, to be honest, I, I have to go way back. Um, well, we can I go back raised, to the log cabin. We can go back, you know, so, you know, so we, can, we can go back that far, yep. I was raised uh, on the shores of Lake Michigan in northern Wisconsin. Uh, our home was right across the street from the lake, and uh, my mother would take my hand as a little boy and walk me across and there was a creek that flowed into uh, Lake Michigan at that point. And I just got a kick out of working with the water. I would build the levees and dams and canals and dig wells. And so later on, uh, I get to college and I find out that if I study civil engineering, I can continue to do that and get paid for it. And I did that for probably 30 years in my career. Um, and, and that's really how it started. I just fell, uh, I fell in love with water. As far as being a writer is concerned, I had a great English teacher in high school. Her name was Joyce Spahn, and she made us write an essay every week, and we hated that. (laughs) But then when I got to college, I found that I had a running start, and I loved writing. We had an engineering dean who told us uh, that if we do anything in college, learn how to communicate, learn how to write, learn how to speak, learn how to use uh, uh, visuals. I'll learn how to use mathematics and learn how to listen, and that that had an impact on me. And I also had a prof there in college who said to me, this guy that had come from just a small town up in the north, 
that when I go to graduate school, I should shoot for what I think is the best graduate school in the country. And at that time, for my field, it was Johns Hopkins, and that's where I went. And that had a tremendous impact on me. That's probably enough, but I think any of us that looks back, we find that there are these pivotal moments that at the time seem um, sort of innocuous, but uh, yeah. they have a big impact on us. You probably had the same experiences. Yeah, and that's actually one of, the th- one of the things I like doing about this show is asking guests about that, and it's interesting, the diversity of them. And, but, but you're right, I think. Usually there, is, there are these things, and sometimes they're salient and sometimes they're not. But, uh, and actually, I don't know that you know this, but uh, we share common cause in, in fluid flow. I'm I'm a trained civil engineer and hydrolition with kind oh. of a fluid transients background. So, but we won't we won't go off and uh, in, into that. We've got too much to talk about with uh, creativity and so forth. So, and in uh, another thing, we're interested in the show uh, in in the whole new engineer and and elsewhere in the show's focus is unleashing experiences. And we may have heard your unleashing experiences, but. You've, you've had the courage to kind of go your own way, and uh, you've been in industry, then you, you know, you've been in academic life, you've been in industry, you've been back in academic life, you've then gone off on your own. What, what were some of the influences that sort of gave you permission or helped, helped build your courage to be able to kind of do your own thing as you've managed to do over the course of your career? Uh, I found that when I get into a position, my first real position was um, to be an instructor and an assistant professor, and then I moved to government, and then I moved to uh, a consulting firm, and then I moved back to academia, and then I went into business for myself. And what I found is in any one of those positions, I'd be real excited when I first got there, but then after a while, uh, two things would happen. Uh, One is... I found that I like to build things. I like to be involved in creating something new. Mm. And once I got there, I just wasn't good at maintaining it. <laughs> uh, and the other thing was, and I'm embarrassed to say this, I'm not the best employee. I'm not the best sort of what we used to call company man or woman. I just tend to ask a lot of questions, and I, maybe I overthink things, and I wonder why we do this and why we do that and why we can't get better, and that just rubs some people the wrong way. That's my story. Yeah, no, and it's uh, and thanks for thanks for sharing it, and and I think um, it seems to me that the world's coming to you. It seems to me that we've we've created an educational system that has educated company men and mainly men back in the 50s, and, and it's, it's a bit out of date. And uh, we're looking more for the people who do ask the embarrassing questions and, and help, build, help build new stuff. So it, the cool thing about our times is uh, that uh, the world's coming, coming to us. So we're here to talk about your uh, talk about creativity and innovation, especially in the context of higher education. And and you've just published a book called Introduction to Creativity and Innovation for Engineers. Uh, love the title. And why? What was it that uh, motivated you to write this book? Why did it need to be written? I I would like to tell you it was part of my grand plan, but that would be less than honest. It was by accident. Um, About seven, eight years ago, on a whim, I walked into our community arts center 
took a one-day class in graphite pencil drawing. Mm. That was the first uh, art instruction I'd had since the third grade, which was decades ago. And I just fell in love with it. I kept uh, at it. I uh, eventually went to colored pencil and some acrylics and so on. But in the process, I stumbled across, and here's one of those pivotal things again, sure. Betty Edwards' book, Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain. So I yes. buy this book. It's got some great drawing lessons in it. But then I realized that she has a very clever title. Not only is she talking about drawing, as with graphite pencil, but she's also talking about drawing on, using, pulling yes. the right side of the brain to complement the left side of the brain. Now, this thing that I got into, this drawing, which was just a, a diversion, becomes a thought process that, that I want to answer the question, what if we engineers knew more about how our brain works? Hmm. How would... How might that help us be more effective, work smarter, be more uh, effective, efficient, and more creative and innovative? So then I started writing about that and talking about that, and, uh, and then I finally said, you know, I've got all this material. Why don't I try a book? I found a publisher. That wasn't real easy. found a publisher. turned out sure. to be a great one. And that's the story of how the book came about. <laughs> and again, we share common cause uh, uh a few years back, uh, um, my wife and I were blessed to take uh, Brian Baumleisler's course, who Brian is Betty Edwards' son, and he offers a two, three-day course um, at drawright.com where, where people get to go through the, the methodology of that book, and it was life-changing for my wife and I, especially my wife, who is now um, actually becoming a, a, pr a pretty fair uh, oil painter of birds and wildlife in our, our area. But it, it, is, it, is, it can be a, it can be a, a life-changing kind of thing. And, and um, I guess, you know, but you, you wrote the book from the, in a context of engineering and was something, what was it, was there something, was there something missing in engineering education? Did the book need to be written for engineering especially, or was there something, what was it about engineering education that you thought needed this, this kind of emphasis? Wasn't, aren't engineers creative and innovative enough? Well, I, I, I'd like to be more positive. i say they could be much more creative and innovative. I did do my research. Yeah. I asked the question, well, maybe this book is already out there. But I didn't find anything like this. I found some books with creativity, innovation, engineer in the title, but I found no books that use brain basics as a foundation. Mm -hmm. So that would either be, that would be unique. Now, whether it would be valuable or a failure, that's another question. But I knew it would be unique, and that was enough for me to... Uh, to push it and see if I could uh, if I could write it, and if I could get it published. So uh, time will tell. Okay, and so um, as an engineering educator, um, your experience with um, you know there's a sense in which uh, engineering can be. You know, so engineering, as you said, is about building things, and the act of building and making is itself. 
uh, a creative act. But what's you know? So maybe that maybe we should talk a little bit about creativity versus innovation. I think people make distinctions between those. Are those are those distinct? Do you like to distinguish the two, or think of one as a a lesser form of the other? Or how do you how do you talk about creativity and innovation? Um, yeah, you use the expression. Uh one, a lesser form of the other. Again, I thought when I began to research this that there would be some widely accepted definitions of the words creativity and innovation. Yeah. But I was surprised to find that that's not the case. It's sort of what you want to call it. I've chosen to, to, um, to think of creativity as being extremely original. Mm. And I've chosen and I write this up in the book, uh, innovation to be more or less a matter of bringing together what's already sort of obviously there, but it's never been put together in that way. And, uh, but others would say, well, creativity is the original part, and innovation is making it practical, making it usable, implementing it. However, as I say, there doesn't seem to be any common uh, definition. In my book, my ex- one of the examples I use of creativity is the invention of Velcro, uh, which turns out to be a classic example of what we now call biomimicry. Uh, but there was never anything like that before. There was never a fastener like that before. And it was inspired by an electrical engineer examining a burr that yes. was caught on his coat and uh, similar burrs on his dog's coat and seeing the possibility of Velcro. When it comes to innovation, one of the examples I use in my book is uh, Gutenberg inventing the printing press. And, of course, that's not accurate. Uh, He invented the reusable type printing press. But in doing that, he brought together centuries-old block printing that the Chinese had used, and he brought together metal forging that the Romans had used, and he brought together the uh, uh, wine and olive press that was in current use at that time. And he saw how he could bring all those together and come up with this powerful uh, reusable-type printing press that had an impact, you know, sort of akin to the impact of the Internet in the last 20 years in terms of world communication. Yep. Well, and and well, so this. What, what do you what do you use in terms of meanings for those terms, creativity and innovation? Yeah, so what I, th- camp I, I, are I you think. In? You, yeah, I think you covered you know, the both of the big categories or the category of so innovation as um, so invention is not enough, and innovation is the carrying of that uh, successfully into the marketplace is is one one set of definitions and then the other set of definitions you see are are, are an attempt to have gradations of of the degree by which something is is uh, novel or has less precedent than something else and is in some sense surprising based on um, the originality of the the definition but uh, and and you know, sometimes these definitions have a social component where, uh, like Zeke's and Mahali's definition of creativity, that there's there are people out there that can judge creativity when they see it. There, so there's a social side of determining whether something's creative or not, and and the 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 definition of innovation as being accepted in some sense by a marketplace is uh, the other you know the other kind of definition. And I've 
I've used, you know, and uh, I, I did a book back in the early 2000s called The Design of Innovation, which is mainly about kind of this putting the recombining of things uh, from my work in genetic algorithms and evolutionary computation and looked at that fairly analytically. But um, I, I mean, I, th- I think you can, as you said, I think you can, I think you can, can choose. And I think from the standpoint of educating young people uh, today, both, both sides are important. Um, the the kind of uh, having having students who are ready to be more original, uh, and also having students who are ready to carry things out into a market uh, so that they're well accepted by larger numbers of people are both important. Would you agree? Yeah. yeah. And and by the way, that uh, carrying something out into a market, I'm very upfront in my book in the last chapter to say to remind the reader that that's not the purpose of my book. That's another book. That's other books. Sure. Uh, so I think we need to be very upfront about that. Uh, while it is a challenge to be creative and innovative, uh, it, especially when in our higher education environment, the way it operates today, uh, there's an even bigger challenge of once you have a great idea of getting it out there in the marketplace. Yeah. And and so, um, what the book hasn't been out that long, but what's what you know, before we're going to talk more about some of the ideas in the book in our next segment. But before uh, before then, uh, the book hasn't been out that long. What's been the initial reception so far? What kinds of feedback have you been getting? Well, as you might expect, colleagues, many colleagues have been uh, congratulatory, and I, I appreciate that because they know the effort that's required to research and write a book. There have been no formal reviews published yet. I, I want them, positive or negative, I want them because I and potential readers will learn from the process, and I'm working with the publisher trying to connect them up with magazines and journals that, uh, that do that sort of thing. I have had a few comments that have been uh, uh, very uh, complimentary. I, just, I have one right here. I'm going to put this up on my website the next time we update, but... This a person says, um, this is really excellent. The first, first comprehensive overview of creativity, innovation, subject matter that I have read that is geared toward the engineer. Well, that may not be uh, completely uh, uh, accurate, uh, Dave. The creativity, innovation topic is unfortunately overlooked at the university. This would make an excellent textbook. The exercises at the end of the chapter are great. I mean, that's... That's uplifting for me. Of course, that's just one person's opinion. Sure, time will tell. Well, well and that's right. And it, uh, the early returns sound like they're sound like they're good. And and I think what we want to do is uh, in the next segment we want to we want to dive into the book and see what some of the salient points that uh, that you're making uh, this idea, uh, basing it on brain science and and rooted in work and psychology and so forth. So. Um, this is Big Beacon Radio with special guest Sue Wallace. In the next segment, we're gonna we're gonna talk a little bit more about uh, this this book about creativity and innovation. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? 
Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3Joy website, www.3joy.com today. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. And get a copy of the book that is Transforming Higher Education, A Whole New Engineer, The Coming Revolution in Engineering Education at wholenewengineer.org. It's not just for engineers anymore. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio. I'm Dave Goldberg, and here we're here with Stu Wallace, and uh, we're... Uh, uh, we're talking about uh, his book, Introdu- Introduction to Creativity and Engineer- Innovation for Engineers. And uh, before the break, we were sort of setting up what what motivated the um, uh, what motivated the book. And and uh, you start the book with a chapter on why why should why should engineers, but I, maybe generalize this, why should students in general learn more? about creativity and innovation. I think that's a great question. Why should we why should we care more about this subject say now versus uh, 20 years ago? Oh, a lot of a lot of possible answers to that and I I touch on some of them in that uh in that chapter. I think one of the principal reasons Dave is our profession which has got to be one of the oldest professions because whenever nomads decided to settle down in a community, usually along a river or a lake or an ocean, uh, they immediately needed a certain amount of infrastructure, water supply, wastewater, transportation, housing, and so on. And the engineers, or what we would now call the engineers, stepped forward and figured out how to plan, design, construct, and and take care of it. So we have a history of being creative uh, and innovative. And And so we need to extend that into an increasingly complex world. And we need to prepare the young people to be able to do that. Uh, There's also a matter here of stewardship. Uh, You mentioned that I've worked in the public and the private and the academic sectors. And in all cases, I've had a tremendous amount of contact with young engineers or aspiring engineers. And I've, I've been struck by their uh, great qualities, above-average intelligence, I can say in all immodesty, I guess. I used to see when I worked at the university the statistics on the incoming freshman class, engineering students, business students, nursing students, uh, uh, and so on across the campus, arts and science students, and we got the best. We got the best in terms of their academic 
accomplishments and in terms of their high school uh, records, and and then in terms of their work ethic. And I, it, it increasingly bothered me. Are we practicing the best stewardship with that tremendous talent we get? And I I searched for for many years to answer that question, and my answer now is, well, we could do more, and we could do more by helping them see how they could be more creative and innovative because they've got the smarts and they've got the work ethic uh, to make that happen. Um, a third factor that drove me is I'm thinking what's going to be the role of U.S. engineers in a increasingly globalized social, economic, technological uh, society. We know that what we call the knowledge age is now being, in effect, practiced, can be practiced in rising nations around the world. India comes to mind, China comes to mind, and so on. Uh, those smart young people there that are studying engineering and science and related professions can pick up quite quickly on the sort of algorithmic algorithmic approach that we teach our students. So our students need to find something else to do. They need to raise the bar. They need to get beyond the existing procedures and create new ones. Mm. Get beyond the existing uh, parts of the infrastructure, the way we've done it for decades, and figure out better ways of doing it. So those are a couple reasons why I think our students should learn more about creativity and innovation. I hope I didn't go on too much with that. No, no, and I think I think you know one of the points to make our our listenership is probably as much uh, global as it is uh, U.S. and and so and when I go around uh, go around the world and talk about a whole new engineer and and some of the possibilities for transforming education, I many ways get more interest outside of the United States and South America and Asia and and Europe, uh, as in as in say the and, and Canada as as say the United States. So I think there's a it's actually um, it's actually an interesting question whether. Uh, U.S. engineering educators are as interested in the things that you're advocating here as, say, um, engineering educators in in that developing world. Uh, my, my experience has been that they're thirsty for it and they want to uh, they want to leapfrog into um, a place of innovation and entrepreneurship, and and uh, they're in some sense hungrier than we are here in the states. Maybe you've come across. The book, Building Gold in India, Building Gold in India, it was just published late last year, early this year, uh, late last year. No, I haven't seen that one. Uh, the author is Shahil Kumar from India. He, he's a U.S. citizen, lives out in California. I was put in touch with him, sure. in touch with him by my daughter, and he's written a book that has a great vision for taking India a leap forward by revamping its education system, including helping Indians become much more creative and innovative. So you're right. There's uh, there's interest in this subject around the globe. And it's interesting. It lands differently in different cultures, and some cultures, um, you know, so you know, some people attribute uh, the U.S.'s uh, 
some of the U.S.'s lead in things like entrepreneurship and, and natural uh, innovativeness in the in the culture of invention at the turn of the century, the the Bells, the Edisons, the Fords, and so forth. But um, it it seems like uh, you know the this this democratization of information and the availability of all this stuff to everybody simultaneously seems to have uh, have have changed the. Ball game. So, uh, you know, one in in this engineering context, one of the things you uh, you call out the um, the uh, National Academy of Engineering grand challenges as inspirational, and I and I guess I, I'm curious why wh- what you think about the NAE challenges and and uh, the connection with the creativity and innovation uh, narrative of your book. I see those grand challenges as a barometer of the breadth and depth of engineering scientific challenges that, uh, that were faced. Mm. Uh, oh, interestingly, one of them is, challenge nine is, reverse engineer the brain. <laughs> sure. Uh, I'm, not, you know, I'm not sure what that means, but I'll tell you, to the extent that anybody tries to reverse engineer the brain, maybe to... Uh, improve uh, artificial intelligence or something like that, to the extent they do that, they're going to learn more about the human brain, and it's going to be helpful just in and of itself. But those challenges are so broad, deep, global, that if we're, really, if we're serious about taking them on, uh, we're going to have to be more creative and innovative. And in fact, in that re- when the... Uh, NAE talks about the next generation of engineers. Uh, they're very explicit about being even more creative and innovative. They call that out. So that's another reason that I mentioned NAE, not sure. just the grand challenges. Yeah, I'm thinking I, in particular about yeah, a whole I, new I, engineer. I, yeah, I, I I worry a little bit about the grand challenges. Uh, they're so big. And you know, in a lot of you know, there's a fair amount of literature talking about uh, smallifying uh, when you're being entrepreneurial, and um, they all. I, I, I'm con- I'm a little concerned about the grand challenges, kind of giving the wrong impression about how creativity and innovation actually take place. They take they take place from motivated groups of individuals and motivated organizations. Uh, there's a sense in the NAE challenges that it's it's kind of a centralized governmental function. Which oh. has almost never been the country, the case in, um, in 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 the U.S. And so I, I have I have I have some reservations, and I'm less enthusiastic about the NAE grand challenges than than some of my colleagues. I, that's not to say that I'm I'm opposed to them, but I I wonder to the extent that the NAE grand challenges and kind of tackling those and telling young people to tackle them is consistent with many of the messages in your book. Uh, that's a good point. I never thought of the grand challenges that way. What you seem to be suggesting is they could lead to a kind of complacency in the sense that, well, now at least we know what the challenges are. We'll decide whether or not we're going to work on them, rather than also trying to be alert to the innumerable challenges that are all around us. Yes. I mean, any place I mean, I've yes. worked, I've found that there were things that needed major fixes. Needed creative, innovative approaches. I didn't have to rely on some government agency to tell me that. I just had to be alert to what was happening around me. Yeah, 
And I, and I'm not. I don't want to put. I don't want to punctuate that too much. And I and I respect the. Um, I respect my colleagues that have have pushed on the NA challenges, and and they've they've. Uh, it's been a way to communicate something uh, big and bold to to young people that I do think is valuable. And I'm I'm concerned that that uh, you know. So one of that you could say, well, okay, are you are you working on re- you know uh, reverse engineering the brain, or are you are you working on you know some uh, some technology that. Um, that is helpful in understanding something about the brain, and, and it, it, that sounds, you know, so the the building blocks of the the larger solutions are sort of step by step, and can be done in in labs by individuals and small groups of individuals and and uh, and entrepreneurial organizations. Um, I, I just I just get a little bit nervous about uh, specifying sort of big things, and and uh, and and then. You know, seeking that then. Well, okay, is the government spending enough money to to solve or or to mount this challenge? And and um, uh, in our economy, that there, there's always been you know that many of the challenges of the last century were were done by entrepreneurs that that built great companies on 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 the backs of great ideas. And I, I um, it sort of kind of reversed it and turned it into something huge and big. Anyways, I, I don't want to I don't want to hijack. Um, our time together to talk about the the National Academy of Engineering. I just uh, noticed that in there, and I wanted to see what your uh, take is. And so, I think one of the key points in your book is the sense that uh, we live at a time of great bounty for neuroscience and psychology generally. And and um, you highlight this in a uh, in in one of your early uh, chapters. What are some of the key points in in this chapter for? Uh, what do we understand today about um, about creativity and innovation from from a basic point of view that's that's so helpful to us? I was fascinated to learn what we know about our conscious thinking and our subconscious thinking, or what we loosely call our conscious mind and subconscious mind, as though it were in sort of two different places mm. in our brain. But what I've learned is that when we say conscious mind, we mean we're thinking and we know it, like you and I are thinking right now and we know it. What our subconscious mind, that thinking is going on 24-7, and we have no idea what it's doing at any given time. This is what the neuroscientists tell us. Well, okay, that's kind of interesting. But it becomes even more interesting when, we, when they tell us that the vast majority of our thinking is subconscious. You know, it's like the uh, iceberg. With the tip of the iceberg is our conscious thinking, and the rest of the iceberg is our subconscious thinking. Well, if that's true, then my understanding, the brain says, how can we get that subconscious mind to work better for us? And the answer to that is, we need to very thoughtfully engage our conscious minds in the current problem we're trying to solve or opportunity we're trying to pursue or issue we're trying to take care of and then just let it go for a while just let it sit for a while and then pick it up later and inevitably when we pick it up later we'll find that that subconscious mind has been working on it you know people will say well uh, this this person was a great inventor like the person who invented the barcode that's an interesting story the barcode uh, it just occurred to him. It just came out of the blue. Well, that's not true. 
he his conscious and subconscious mind interacted for over a year as he as he dealt with that and eventually the idea did pop into his mind by the way while he was sitting on a chaise lounge on a beach <laughs> he put his hands out in the sand and he pulled them back and he saw all these parallel lines of different thickness all ah barcode he said i mean that's that's where it yes. came from so that one aspect of the human brain, getting an f- understanding of the conscious, unconscious mind, conscious, subconscious mind interaction is very powerful, very powerful. And some of the tools that we use, some of them are in my book, help us, discipline us to get that process going. Yeah, and I that yeah, and I and I think these you know some of some of what we're finding out in learning theory says this as well. We there's this tendency to kind of do kind of focused learning where you're you're on task, but it's just as important to kind of let go as you're saying and and let the parts of your brain, other parts of your brain, um, uh, do do their um, do their job. So so you call that out. Are are there um, um, as part of uh, as part of kind of exploiting the way our brains work, your book calls out what you call a whole brain methods. What are, what are some of the the key methods that you call out in the book? Yeah, I I call out twenty methods, and then at one point in my book, I mentioned this is just a subset of all the methods that are out there. Yeah. I pick twenty that uh, uh, seem to be a good cross section, and in most cases, I've used uh, I've used them. Uh, one that I use often, uh, Dave, is um, uh, mind mapping. Very mm-hmm. simple. can be done by an individual or a group. What we need is a big white space or a blackboard or a bunch of newsprint sheets on a wall somewhere where everybody can see it. And then we just say, all right, here is what we're going to try to do today. Uh, what would be some ways we could solve this challenge? And we put the name of the challenge in the middle of that white space, and then we just brainstorm. But this is, this is elevated brainstorming in the sense that somebody comes up with an idea, it gets added to that evolving, radiating uh, diagram. No judgments. Just get it out there. The visualness of it and the lateralness of it and the idea that it's not linear, I find is very stimulating. I've done this many times myself. And I've done it many times facilitating it with groups. We get a rich number of ideas. Now then, if we let it go, as you say, let it go for a while, pick it up tomorrow, this thing will expand again. Now what do we do with it? Well, now we have a rich set of ideas and thoughts. And we we can whittle that down. We can organize that. We can do what we want with it. Sure. But the... The emphasis here is on that initial, wide open, divergent thinking. Yeah, I want to pick. We we need to take a quick break, but I I want to come back to this and and maybe examine a method or two more, and then and then focus on the ways in which we can introduce these ideas into uh, higher education, engineering education, and higher education more generally. This is Big Beacon Radio with special guest Stu Wallish. In the next section, we want to dive into some of these whole brain methods a little bit more and talk about what they mean for higher education.
From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. Do you want greater success in bringing change to your university, college, department, or classroom? Are you looking for a keynote speaker to inspire your organization with stories of transformative change? Would you like to boost your own academic, business, or technical career? Let David E. Goldberg of 3Joy Associates help. David is a leading speaker, author, trainer, and leadership coach with experience in helping bring successful change to educational organizations and education and technical careers around the globe. To learn more, call Dave Goldberg at 217-621-2645. Contact him at deg at 3joy.com or browse the 3joy website www.3joy.com today we're making it easier to listen to the voice america talk radio network live wherever you go on iphone blackberry or android download it from the apple itunes app store blackberry app world or android market You are listening to Big Beacon Radio. If you'd like to call into the program today, please call 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to deg at bigbeacon.org. Now, back to this week's show. So get the coaching and deep faculty development you need to help transform higher education at your institution at 3joy.com. And welcome back to Big Beacon Radio with Dave Goldberg. And I'm here with Stu Wallace, and we're talking about creativity and innovation in higher education. And, and Stu, in the last segment, we were talking about um, whole brain methods, and, and you call and... and um, uh, you called out the mind mapping as an, one that you find particularly important. I was struck at the beginning, and, and we've had we've had any number of coaches and uh, thought leaders on the show talking about the importance of uh, asking questions of different flavors. And I think you start with uh, that. I, I I think that that uh, questioning and listening are are a huge part of uh, being more creative. Um. I hesitated when putting the book together to include as my first method what I call ask, ask, ask. Mm-hmm. But I, as you've just said or implied, we as engineers don't do enough of that. I've had opportunities to poll practicing engineers as to why do, are they so hesitant to be proactive in question asking. And you know what the most common response is? They, I can may, guess. they fear I can guess. it will make them appear yep. poorly prepared or incompetent. Yep. And so I have to argue, well, it, question asking indicates you are prepared, and the content of the questions indicates that you are competent. You know what kinds of things to ask. So I decided this has got to be in the book, and I have to address those obstacles, and I have to encourage students to become askers. I couldn't agree more in in um, in our work in iFoundry and some of the work that's in a whole new engineering 
uh, talked about the missing basics of engineering. You know, you you have these arguments as as I know you've had with colleagues in the academy about what curriculum should be like, and you say, well, shouldn't we do this these communication skills and so forth? And then the answer is, but wouldn't that dilute the basics? Yeah. And so the the first one of my missing basics was drawn from an example of going out in the field with young engineers and what they didn't know how to do. And the first thing they didn't know how to do was ask good questions of their client. Yeah. Yeah. And I called that a failure of Socrates 101. Yeah, because they that. did, yeah. you know, the, what did Socrates teach the Western world to do in the 5th century BC but ask but ask great questions that led to understanding. And maybe that's where we engineering teachers engineering academics could learn a lot from the law school academics because they use that Socratic method. Yes, and so I, anyways, I, I, I applaud you for having the courage to, to, to do that in, in your book. Maybe, is there another, you know, you've got the 20 methods, is there another one you want to call out before we start to talk about this and the, how, how we do this practically in higher education? Yeah, I mentioned that most of the methods are pretty easy to understand. It's just yeah. a matter of having the discipline to then use them. But the one that's a little bit complicated, at least it was for me the first time, is this one called uh, TREES. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's T-R-I-Z. It's, the, uh, it, it's a, uh, uh, a Russian method developed by a Russian. Uh, it would be translated theory of inventive problem solving. And he, did a, he and his, his crew did a fabulous job of studying... Russian patents, Russian patents, and what they were trying to do is answer the question, when we're faced with a problem, might somebody have been faced with this sort of problem before in the general sense? And if so, are there some sort of common solutions to this mm-hmm. kind of problem, and could we find them? And, and that's the essence of the method. And I've got this one example in my book, uh, a, a soap manufacturing company was facing an issue where some of the boxes of soap, bar soap, that came off the uh, manufacturing line were missing the soap. And so they were sending out empty boxes. Mm. And so they hired a consultant who came up with an elaborate system of weighing the boxes at the end of the assembly line. Then they applied trees And the solution was to go out and buy a $20 fan, set it up at the end of the manufacturing line, and if the boxes blew off, they were empty. So I just just think that is really uh, interesting, how we need to find ways to take a fresh look at the problems we're facing. Nice. And so, you know, I want to turn this on the discussion you know, this shows about transforming higher education, um, making, helping align higher education with the, with the times. Uh, and and I guess we've established that at least you and I agree that there's, there, there is a, a lacuna here. There's something missing, and and so, I guess I'm wondering, I'm curious, what why that is? What makes the teaching of creativity and innovation challenging or problematic uh, in engineering and higher education more generally? We could go on that. Let me hit some high points. One challenge we have from the get-go, these 18-year-olds come to us 
in the engineering college, and they already have a very strong left-brain orientation. Mm-hmm. They, they're very analytic. Uh, they want you, they want me to give them a problem, well-defined problem, give them an algorithm or process to solve the problem. They'll work on it, and they want to know if they got the right answer. Nothing basically wrong with that, but it's so confining. So that left brain orientation is, is one of the challenges. Another challenge is, especially in the case of my book, thinking about the brain uh, is scary to some people. I get reactions, especially from practitioners, that say, look, I don't have time to learn about the brain the way a brain surgeon learns about the brain. I don't have time for that. Or the reaction is, oh, that's that touchy-feely stuff. I don't have time for that either. Uh, I'm a serious person. And I try to tell them, look, this is 180 degrees from that. This is practical stuff. But if you try to introduce some of my ideas into the curriculum in an academic department somewhere, uh, some of them are going to say brain studies have nothing to do with us. Uh, We have more serious things to do. So those are two challenges uh, right there. Yeah, so I'm hearing, yeah, so I'm hearing that as, uh, um, you know, the one, I guess the one challenge of sort of the culture of the education prior to, you know, the K-12, especially in, in, especially in STEM subjects is oriented towards getting the right answer, math, getting the right answer. Um, And now to, to sort of shift to problems that, may have many right answers is uh, is counter that culture. Uh, that's one thing, I'm, I guess, but I'm also hearing, I'm hearing the second part is sort of concerns over status, that, um, that I'm not a serious engineer or a serious, uh, a serious graduate of higher education if I think about things that are uh, too soft, is what I'm hearing. Is that yes. is that a fair yeah? So that it's actually so in one the one case we're talking culture, another case we're talking status, but in either case are we talking anything that's scientific? And so it's a little bizarre for scientists to reject scientists or people applied scientists or, or engineers to reject um, good um, good science. Um, I guess one one of the concerns you expressed was sort of t- time to do it, but of course nobody's expecting an engineer to understand neuroscience like a brain surgeon either. That's right, and and we do expect an engineer, a mechanical engineer, to understand how an automobile engine works. Sure. Uh, why can't that mechanical engineer also understand, to a much lesser extent, but in a practical way, how a brain works? They're both systems. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. This is one of the things that I find is that that um, in talking about these things in workshops with faculty and so forth, that they actually do seem to appreciate a mechanistic approach. So you say, all right, so we're in trust. We're talking about mindfulness. So we're talking about medial prefrontal cortex and connections there, and meditation increases the connections there. And people are just trying to make sense of the world. If you can actually find that to some extent the Connections to the brain science, at least at some level, are are helpful for understanding yeah. and make it less 
make it less touchy-feely, make it more kind of connected to something that matters to them. Along those lines, I came across a couple of books where the authors say, when we're teaching, when we're helping students learn, what we're really doing is making physical changes in their brains. Mm -hmm. See, that's kind of a systemic uh, system uh, logical approach that some faculty, I think what you're saying, will respond to. If we yeah, no, I, th- I, th- I think that, that it, you can, of course, you can go too deep into it and you can go into unnecessary detail about firing of this, that, or the other thing. But at, at some level, a, 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 me- a mechanistic understanding of sort of the kinds of things that are happening and one's abilities to respond creatively or innovatively in some area is, is, is valued. I, I guess you know. So, so it's challenging. Um, there are ways to overcome these challenges. Uh, what what can we do to um, do a better job of in, in integrating the the teaching and learning of creativity and innovation into uh, higher education more generally? Let's let's broaden it out a bit from engineering. We, what we need to do is tell the freshmen right from the start, the freshman engineering students, that an engineer is much more than a problem solver. Being a problem solver is a wonderful talent. But the engineer, in addition to doing that, is also an opportunity seeker, a creator, an innovator. My experience in teaching freshmen and sophomores a long time ago is, and I'm not being trivial, if you tell them something at that stage and you support it with what you say and do in the classroom, they will believe you. But if you tell them that an engineer solves problems, period, that will be their mindset. So we have to establish a, a broader mindset. One way to do that, by the way, is to try to teach them some history over the last couple thousand years that illustrates the creative, innovative accomplishments of yeah. engineers to instill in them the idea that they're going to carry that forward and make similar contributions. And, and another thing we need to do, and this maybe be a little harsh for some faculty, is we got to get faculty away from academia even more, maybe more creative sabbaticals, maybe something else, mm. so that they get out there and see what their real problems are, and then when they come back to their institution, they can focus on, on solving those problems. I recall a, a prof I had in uh, graduate school. I love the man. But he, he, he was a person who had theories and algorithms looking for problems rather than a man who was aware of real problems and then could, could find theories and algorithms to solve them. Yeah, so the, the first part of that you were really talking about, there's, there's a special moment at the beginning of... of uh, of an engineering education to yes. reframe what that education is about. If you tell kids they're problem solvers, they're going to believe it. If you tell them, um, you tell them other stories about what engineering is, they'll and then and act in a way that's a, in accord with those stories. They'll believe it. I, I remember in iFoundry we talked about 
we talked about the three joys, the joy of engineering, the joy of learning, and the joy of community, and we told stories around what those meant, and they, it was a reframing that was very yeah. powerful. So I, I, I couldn't agree more that that, that kind of reframing is, is um, powerful. And, of course, there, there are very little incentive for a faculty member in engineering to go out and, and get professional practice before coming to the university. It actually puts you behind the curve in terms yeah. of tenure and promotion, but um, it, uh, it, it, there's, there's no incentive there. Well, we've, we've just got about 30 seconds left, Stu. It's been fascinating to talk to you, but where can people find out more about your book and your work? Please go to my website, www helping you engineer your future helping you engineer your future great you will find there many complimentary articles and essays and of course information about my books including that most recent book great thanks thanks so much Stu for joining us it's been a great conversation you've been Listening to Big Beacon Radio, Transforming Higher Education with special guest Stu Wallace. I'm Dave Goldberg. Help us transform higher education. Join the movement to unleash a new generation of innovators at bigbeacon.org. Join us next week, same time, same channel, as we continue our quest to transform higher education. Thank you for tuning in to Big Beacon Radio, transforming higher education. Please join Dave Goldberg soon for another edition. Listen every Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. For additional information about our programs or to find out about the next show, please visit bigbeacon.org. We'll talk again very soon.